Well, if you have your Bibles, um, if you could open them back up or keep them open to Joshua 8. Um, this short passage, uh, thought by many commentators to be the high point in the heart of the book of Joshua, I think they're right, actually. Um, tucked away, maybe it's been a while since you've read that one, but it is a brief and astounding story. Um, it fits into a biblical theme that that hoping to unpack a little bit today and uh, on how, you know, as, as Rob prayed, the importance of God's word and, and what it means to live with him. And so it's a it's an important uh, thing that we'll, that we'll read. I'm going to try to tell the story to you, and then at the end I'd like to reflect on a couple of, of points that I think um, are important for us in it. <clears throat> in the, uh, in the, the city, the Spanish city of, of Valladolid, there is a statue to Christopher Columbus. He, he died there in 1506, and uh, he's at the top of the statue, and underneath him there's a, fittingly, there's a globe symbolizing the earth. And across that globe is the Latin motto of Spain at the time, which was non plus ultra, no more beyond. Kind of a little bit of an arrogant thing, I suspect, that they had conquered it all. They, they were the top dog. But on that statue there's a lion, and its claw is is clawing away the word non, so that the motto now reads, plus ultra, more beyond, because Columbus rightly thought there's more lands to be discovered, and he, he found them. In fact, here, here's a picture of the statue. You can see the, the N in the, in the lion's claws. He's scraping it away so that the motto now reads, more beyond, that Columbus had discovered. I think that this passage is like that lion. That it scrapes away for us that this, this event, which seems a bit obscure and brief, is actually so important. It's a more beyond moment of what God is doing. We're met with this scene that pictures something more to come, but also reflects on what has already been as God brings his people into the promised land. So hopefully I've built it up enough that this is actually a glimpse into glory as the title of the sermon is this morning. So let's try to unpack this and see what we can learn from it this morning. Last week, if you were here, you remember we left the Israelites um, in Gilgal, a, a little settlement down on the valley floor of the Jordan Valley, uh, camped out by their, their pile of stones by which they were going to remember forever that God had led them across the Jordan in that phenomenal miracle into the promised land. A lot's happened, actually, between chapter 4 and chapter 8. In chapter 5, they became ritually prepared for the conquest of Jericho, for the, the revealing of God and all of his judgment and majesty. And then they attacked Jericho in chapter 6. And the Lord of all the earth, as he was called there, the, the ark of the Lord of the, of the whole earth, met the rebellious of the earth, in a great confrontation, um, judgment, and doom, that those who stood against God did not fare well. But something went dramatically wrong within Israel at that point, too. 
God had said that everything of value, all the spoils of Jericho belong to me. They're the first fruits. They're going to go into the treasury of the tabernacle, and so you are not to take them. The rest of the conquest, you can have the spoils, but Jericho is mine. And there was a man named Achan who took some things of value, and he, he buried them in the ground under his tent. The Lord was displeased with that. It was literally stealing from God. And the next time that Israel went to war against a little town called Ai, they were defeated because God was not with them and not interested in helping them because of the sin that was in the camp. And God used Joshua to, to point out where the sin resided with Achan. He was found out and punished. And then Jericho, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, then Israel went and fought against Ai again using a battle plan that the Lord had given them. That's the first part of chapter 8. So those are the things that have happened up to this point. And immediately after defeating Ai, we have the story that we're looking at today. So it's on to Shechem, to Gerizim and Ebal. Here's a picture. Uh, Ebal is the one there on the right. Uh, that's the Mount of Cursing, Gerizim, the one on the left, the Mount of Blessing. Um, all of Israel came to this, which is really a significant thing. So that would have meant that the camp of Israel down in the valley had to break camp, and, and it would have taken them about two days to travel up to these two mountains. Um, estimates of how many Israelites there were entered the land vary greatly. Um, I mean, so it's a wide estimate. Let me just say there were lots of them. There were lots of them. There were lots of, of soldiers. There were lots of wives and young women. There were lots of children. And so it had been quite a trek through the hot sun up through the hills, a couple thousand feet ascent to these mountains. The Bible doesn't tell us, but I think that this was the beginning of the are we there yet question. <laughs> Little kids trushed, trudged through the hot sun. And also the beginning of fathers saying, do I have to pull this camel off to the side of the path? <laughs> no more raisin cakes for you as they made their way up. What was it that was so important? The battle that they had just won was actually a little bit to the south. So they're, they're coming up to Shechem, which was an extremely important location. That, that pass between the two mountains, actually, uh, as you look at that picture, if you were to take that picture, your back would be to the Jordan River and you would be looking towards the Mediterranean. And that pass was one of the few ways to get through the northern hill country. And so whoever controlled that pass controlled a lot of the mountains. Why would Israel take such a huge risk to bring all of their people, women and children, to these mountains? Assuming the central hills were somewhat in control, but still, it was a significant move. And the answer lies, as it so often does, with Moses. Twice in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses said to the people of Israel, I want you, I'm commanding you to come here and to have this ceremony. Here's the first one. It's in Deuteronomy 11. 
When the Lord your God has brought you into the land that you are entering to occupy, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. As you know, they're beyond the Jordan, some distance to the west in the land of the Canaanites. And so he says at the beginning of Deuteronomy, I want you to come to these mountains and I want you to do this ceremony of blessing and cursing. And then at the end of Deuteronomy, and this is truncated, so there's, there's more to it than this. Then Moses and the elders of Israel charge all the peoples as follows. Keep the entire commandment that I am commanding you today. On the day that you cross over the Jordan into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and cover them with plaster. You shall write on them the words of this law on Mount Ebal, and you shall cover them with plaster. And you shall build an altar there to the Lord your God, an altar of stone, which you have not used an iron tool. Then offer up burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God, who makes sacrifices of well-being or peace offerings, and eat them there, rejoicing before the Lord your God. He also says the reading of the word and the amen response of the people. But I didn't want to have like three slides of a quote. But, but Moses gives them specific instructions of what they're supposed to do. And so they're actually doing this out of obedience to what Moses had told them to do. To respond and hear and worship at Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And so that's why they took the risk. This is a religious move, if you will. It's worth the risk militarily because they are responding. He says there, in the day that you cross over, it wasn't actually the, the day they did, but it was as soon as they could. And it was at risk to do it. But they thought that it was important to obey. So let's talk the first thing then, Joshua's altar and Israel's offerings. Look at verses 30 and 31 with me. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the law of the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. Um, Mount Ebal is the one to the north there. Um, it sits right under the cloud that says Mount Ebal, which if you go there, it's kind of weird to see that cloud up there, but um, it was the mount where the curses would be pronounced. Gerizim, on the other, would be the mount where the blessings had pronounced. Mount Ebal is just under 3,000 feet high, but you can see it just looks like a small hill. That's because the rest of the the valley is so high in elevation that it's not that far up to the top of Ebal. Um, the two mountains are about a, a mile and a half apart at the top, but you can see they slope down towards each other. The, the city of Shechem, which was not quite so full of cement and steel at, at Joshua's time, but still Shechem is the town that's there. It's uh, present-day Nablus, I believe it's called. And Shechem was a city that was associated with the patriarchs. You know who's buried there? Joseph. Joseph is buried there. You know who built their first altar in the land there? A feller by the name of Abraham. And so there's numerous events that are associated with Shechem that coming here was associated with the patriarchs, with God 
keeping His promises to bring His people some 500 years before. And so this ceremony is not just a little get-together. This has tremendous significance to them. In that pass, in their depressions in the hillside, and it's been tested, it was some time ago, but they had somebody with a strong voice who, who was in one of those depressions and it acts as a natural amphitheater. And so God chose this location with great care that the word could be read and could be heard by the vast majority of the people there crowding the valley between those two hills. And even tradition has it, and I don't know if it's actually true, but tradition has it that Mount Ebal was rocky and barren while Gerizim was wooded and lush, which fits kind of the blessing and cursing theme, doesn't it? So they came to this location that Moses had commanded them to do it. And it says that Joshua built an altar there of uncut stones. Um, that's important. Moses mentioned it, and it mentions it again. Uh, no man had wielded an iron tool. That comes out of the law. And uh, there have been a lot of suggestions as to it, but I think John Curid's suggestion is the correct one. Israel was not allowed to make an image of who they thought God to be. And they were not allowed to make an altar of how they thought worship to him was supposed to be. They did, they put piled up stones uncut. And they were not allowed to form it the way that it should be. Now, it worked in reverse with the tabernacle, didn't it? There they were told exactly how to make it, exactly how it was to be ornate. Because God always controls the access to himself. We don't get to do that. And I think that's what's behind this altar of uncut stones, that they were to worship him, but they were to worship him the way he said that they were to worship him. And not to make it so that it was pretty and formed the way they thought worship and forgiveness and religion should be. So he made uh, this altar for them on the top of Mount Ebal. So it would have been like directly under the L of Ebal there, I think is where the altar would have been. And there they offered two kinds of sacrifices. Now these are really significant. They offered burnt offerings there you see at the end of verse 31. And then they offered a sacrifice to peace offerings. Now, a burnt offering, if you remember, is where the whole animal was burnt. The only thing that got saved out of that was the skin of the animal which was given to the priest, either for their use or for the tabernacle's use. Everything else was burnt. And it was a sacrifice that was accepted for uh, general atonement, general forgiveness, and general reconciliation. It wasn't something that addressed a specific sin. That would have been a sin offering. So it, uh, the burnt offering was just something that it was a general petition for God to be forgiving. It, it might be a little simplistic, but think of it this way. It's the people saying that they are entirely sinful, and so they offer up the entire animal. And God accepts it as um, an atoning sacrifice that brings forgiveness. That was its first point, was to bring about the forgiveness and atoning reconciliation. Its second purpose was it provided a pleasing aroma to the Lord. 
And when you think about it, the Lord is, is smelling this burning animal and, and the aroma, whether it was good or bad, that came to him was sweet to him because it, it signified his people who were bringing an offering that was costly to them. I mean, it cost a lot. These were farmers, right? These are, they're, they're sacrificing animals they depended on for their livelihood. A bull was going to pull the plow. The sheep were going to provide wool and, and other lambs. And, and so they were offering up something that cost a lot to them precisely because they knew they were sinful. And they knew they needed forgiveness. And they desired and needed a restored relationship with God. That's why it was a pleasing aroma to Him. Because they came with hearts that were desirous of being in a right relationship cleared of any obstacles of sin and so the burnt offering was was the most important offering in ancient israel it was corporately mandatory which meant that the priests had to put a a male lamb on the altar every morning and a male lamb on the altar every twilight so everyone during the day and during the night right so symbolically at least i don't I don't really know how long it took to burn up the offering. But symbolically, there's always a general petition of atonement. There's always atonement being made morning and night every day without fail. Kind of reminds you of the Hebrews writer. What's his emphasis in chapter 9 and 10? Jesus once for all time. He did it once. It never loses its effect. Morning and night. Atonement is given. God is satisfied with His people. We have access to Him because Jesus is once for all time sacrifice. That's what the corporate, the national burnt offerings meant. But the burnt offerings could also be brought in by an individual. You or I, if we were ancient Israelites, when we were able to, when we were inclined, we could bring a burnt offering because of devotion to God because we wanted to have that closeness, that assurance that our relationship with Him was unhindered. We were forgiven in a right relationship with Him. And so the burnt offerings came first for the people to have that atoning, forgiving, reconciling element. And then came the peace offerings. And you note there, it says that they offered burnt offerings, but they sacrificed peace offerings. And we don't need to take that too far except to say that the, ter- the change in terms is significant because it means that there are two different kinds of offerings. A peace offering did not address sin. A peace offering was given so that the worshiper could celebrate the relationship that they had with God, the peace, the shalom that they had as a member of God's people. And so they offered these um, in order to Uh, express their delight and their celebration of being part of God's people. These were also voluntary. Uh, The fat portions were given to God and burnt on the altar, but the meat went to the priests and the worshipers who then shared it in a communal meal. And so the peace that they celebrated with God was not just me and myself, but it was rather with God's people. It was a meal to celebrate together who they were. They came from the same altar, atonement and the celebration of unity, and yet those offerings together celebrated who they were, what God had done for them in redeeming them and forgiving them, and had made them His people, His covenant 
people. They were also voluntary, and so we don't know how many were made this in this time, but, um, but there were a lot of them, so there must have been a lot of people if they're going to have a communal meal together, right? Here is a picture of the altar that they found that is right under the L there. Uh, some, you know, full, full disclosure, some people do not think that's the altar. But in my opinion, it's where it should be. It's made of uncut stones. You can see that it's ramped because Exodus 21, I think it is, says that altar should not have steps on it. And they found ashes and bones of sacrificial animals there. So some think it's not, but in my opinion, if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. And so I, I think that's probably the remains of Joshua's heart. And you can see the people there to the side of it. That's a big altar. So there would have been a lot of offerings that had been made on that. It would have been visible from the valley floor. And if I can, if I can get a little bit intense here for a moment, that would have meant that they knew something that we so often forget. And that is how horrible this process is. That they would have heard the cries of the animals. They would have seen the blood-drenched ground. They would have known that atonement is a horrible, violent thing. Offensive and costly. That sin matters because it brings death. And... And they would have seen that as the caravan of worshipers would have gone up the hill towards that altar and sacrificed those animals. They would have known the cost. Children perhaps watching their pets. Farmers watching some of the way they made a living or expected to make a living when they got into the land. And then at some point, the burnt offerings would have stopped. And the peace offerings would have begun. And the caravan would have come back down the hill, only this time they would have been bringing meat. The same offerings, the same horrible process, but this time it meant life, and it meant health, and it signified the peace that they had with God. And the meat would have come down into that throng of people between those two mountains. And undoubtedly the women would have brought out bread from the trip and, and the kids finally could have gotten their raisin cakes and maybe some greens and they would have had a communal meal together. That is a more beyond moment, isn't it? We see ancient Israelites gathered on these between these rocky hills, but think about what's happening there. They had been led there by God's chosen man, Joshua. And Joshua had built an altar there. And they had been atoned for and brought into a right relationship and forgiveness given. And now they're celebrating who they are as God's people together in this great communal meal. I don't think it's very hard to see Jesus in this one, is it? That the second Joshua, same name, had offered himself on a hill for us. And out of that same cross comes the forgiveness of sins and the celebration of being made God's people, His very children in this instance. 
that we have brought into the family. That when we celebrate in the Lord's Supper what is going on, it is the forgiveness and it is the unity that we have with God that our Joshua brought to us. It's a more beyond moment. And so, after the meals, they descend to the valley floor and Joshua announces the word of the Lord. This is really the, uh, the import of what's happening. Moses had commanded for the stones to be set up. He had commanded for them to be plastered over. And he commanded for the book of the law to be written on it. Now, there's been a lot of debate over what exactly that means. Uh, they didn't have bound copies of the Bible like we do, so it, it wouldn't have been Genesis through Deuteronomy. That would have been a bit laborious. That would be a lot of stones, wouldn't it? A lot of writing. And by the way, this, uh, this isn't in my notes, but this is cool, and whether you think it's cool or not, you're just going to have to live with it because I think it's cool. But on this site somewhere, in the last few years, uh, an archaeological dig took place where they went back and they sifted through all of the, the waste, so to speak, of an archaeological dig that had been done back in the 80s. And they found a little silver um, folded up inscription. And it's still under debate, but the age is to the age of Joshua, and it is of cursing. And so it's, it's announcing a curse for someone who doesn't follow the God of Israel. Uh, the significance of it is it's the first known Hebrew writing the earliest Hebrew writing that is known. And so previous to this time, one of the things people said about Moses was that they did not write because the earliest Hebrew inscriptions were from about 900. It's about 300 years earlier to this time. And so it's a, it's a very significant thing, and I've been following the, the scholarly debate on it because it intrigues me. But it does show that Joshua had been able to write the book of the law on these stones. Um, and so he did. Now, some think it could have been the Ten Commandments. Some think it could have been the whole book of Deuteronomy. Um, my guess, which won't get you very far, but it's my guess, is that what he did was he wrote Deuteronomy 27 and 28 on there, which are the blessings and cursings. And the people were to respond with amen. And so when it says here towards the end of the passage that he wrote the entire book of the law, he would have read all of Deuteronomy. When he got to that point where the people were supposed to respond with an amen, a so be it, it was like they had a giant primitive teleprompter there that they could follow along and they would know how to respond. But in the end, all we know is he wrote Moses, that the people responded and committed themselves to. So importantly, twice it mentions the people who were there, sojourners and native-born, soldiers, elders, officers, judges, women, little ones, they were all there. A sojourner would have been Rahab, would have been one of the sojourners. 
Gentiles who had come along to join Israel. They were all there at this moment having experienced the sacrifices, the communal meal where God's table, in a sense, had provided for them because that's, that's what the feeding was all about, that God is going to provide his, his people with their needs. And they all would have been there to commit themselves again to the word of God spoken by Moses. This is who we are. This is who you are, God. This is how we are to act. And they were to say to that, Amen. We will do it so you will bless us. We will not do these so that we will not bear the curse of disobedience. They were all submitting to the Word of God that was written by Moses and then rewritten in their presence by Joshua. And many have called it a covenant renewal in the sense that they are recommitting themselves to the Word of God. I think that's what's happening. If you were here for E412, we talked about that with the prophets, that the prophets were constantly calling the people of Israel back to follow what Moses had written. And that's what's happening here. And then something happened that no one expected. There was a surprise visit. Not even Moses wrote about this. And it's a beautiful thing. There, into that small, packed valley full of people, the priests would have brought the Ark of the Covenant. They would have had to have split the people for it to be able to come through because it was carried by the priests, but it still had a protective guard around it so that one didn't get too close and touch it, which would have been death. But they would have had to move aside with the thousands of people into that little small area as the ark itself came in. If you, if you were here last week, you remember that when the ark was exposed to their view for the first time, they had to stay over a half a mile away. But here in the land, where God promised to walk with them and to be with them, there was no barrier. As the ark would have come in, they would have seen up close, they could have seen the, the expressions that had gotten carved into the faces of the cherubim. They would have seen the intricacy of their wings. They would have felt the weight of God's glory. That's actually what glory means in the Old Testament. Weight. The kind of glory that made Moses' face shine. They would have seen the throne of their God up close. No barriers to it. They could have gotten as close as they could. Peering over the shoulders of those priestly guards. What a moment. What a moment that was. The people standing there around the ark, as John Calvin says, the Lord surrounded on all sides by His own people for the first time, celebrating in right communion, atonement having been made, celebrations of peace and shalom. This was a glimpse into glory. And then what happened? This people, cleansed, atoned, fed, satisfied, staring at the ark in all of its glory from above them would have intoned the voice of Joshua as he began to read the word of God. All of it. The moment 
where Israel comes home, so to speak. The word of God, the, the, the law of the land comes home. There to be the way that they're going to live, the way that they're going to exist with their God. And I imagine that it was a hushed moment once he started to speak. For one, because even though it's a natural amphitheater, they didn't have a microphone, you had to be quiet. But second, the, the solemnity, the sacredness of that moment as God himself, symbolized by the ark, is with them as his word is proclaimed to them. Every word of it, it says. What a sublime moment this is. It is a more beyond moment, isn't it? Let me explain what I mean by that. These three boxes kind of show a progression of God's story here. And if Eden, you see, there was no sin there. And the people had been fed and, and taken care of, provided for by God. And he was there present with his people. And you can see many of the same things there in the middle box, only it's been developed a little bit. Sin is there, but it's been dealt with. We just talked about that with the sacrifices, right? There are people from every tribe, every, you know, I mean, every nation, there are Gentiles who are there. And, and they are fed. They're still being provided for by God. And he's present with his people. You see, this entry into the promised land is a return to Eden, so to speak. It's, it's a time where God is, is working again to bring his people back into the relationship that we had ruined in the first place. It's a return to Eden, an Edenic moment. It's a more beyond moment. But you can see there that it reflects the ultimate moment in Revelation 7 where people are cleansed in white robes, gathered around the throne of God and the Lamb, where they proclaim amen just like they were going to proclaim amen under Moses' instruction here where they are clearly provided for their own glory. So all of their needs are clearly provided for. It's the end game that this points to. Here's the passage. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, there's the Gentiles, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. There's the ark and the Lamb, Christ in the center, clothed in white robes. There's the cleansed element, palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessings and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. <coughs> it's a glimpse into glory, isn't it? This obscure little passage actually ties the beginning and the end together of what God wants from his people. Well, let me uh, reflect on this for just a few minutes and then we'll close up. The first application, I think, and what it means to us is the primacy of God's word in this. Uh, note, again, the order in which things happen, that the people are atoned for first, 
They forget forgiveness first. Then they celebrate who they are. And then in the culmination of who they are, they're gathered around God while His Word is spoken. They have been saved to something. From sin to something. And that something is the reveling in, the obedience to, the hearing of God's Word. I think too often we place salvation, the forgiveness that Christ offers, as the, the end of it, right? Our gospel is trust Christ and have your sins forgiven. That's not actually the gospel. It's part of it, certainly. But it's a pretty important part. But the gospel is the good news that the King has come and brought in His kingdom. And He offers citizenship to any who will come to Him in faith. That His rule has come. That's why He can speak of the gospel of the kingdom in the gospels, the gospel books. Because He'd been saved to something. Forgiveness moves us from a state of being slaves to sin to being slaves to God. We're free. We're not free to do what we want. We're free to listen to His Word and to obey. He gets to call the shots. And our job is to say, Amen. To hear His Word. But notice also something about these boxes. Is, again, to quote Sesame Street, one of these things is not like the other. In the first one, God is immediately there in His presence, isn't He? He's walking with them in the garden. His Word is there. I should have put that in. His Word of which tree you couldn't, couldn't eat. And He's there. And in the end one, in Revelation, He's clearly there. He's on the throne and His Lamb is there. But in the middle, His presence, though there, is symbolized by the ark. That sin has sin means that he cannot be there in his immediacy, in his fullness, because sin has not been completely dealt with. We're still in that case, by the way. We've been given salvation. We are part of his family. We are united with Christ. And yet, as Paul says, in my flesh dwells no good thing. Our fullness, deliverance from sin, is yet to come. And it is in that middle box that we see the primacy of God's Word. As He's gathered there with His people, as they've been redeemed, as they've been celebrating who they are, what is their task? Their task is to hear God's Word. To know Him through and by His Word. And in a real sense, His Word is to know Him. In another real sense, His Word is the means by which we know Him, for He is greater than it. Mark Dever puts it this way, that we live in the age of hearing. We hear God's Word, and and that allows us to have faith in what we cannot see because the age of sight is yet to come. That's the end box. And so we hear His Word now. It's, It's the primacy of it. It's how and what we were saved to. In fact, even Moses' last words, listen to what he said. Well, they were close to his last words, but very end of Deuteronomy. Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today that you may command them to your children. Pass them along so they know, so that they will obey too, that you may be careful to do all the words of this law. But look at that line. It is no empty word for you. 
but your very life. What role does God's word play in your life? Is it your life? I have to say I was a bit confronted with this. A lot of you know that I've spent a lot of my life studying it. And yet how much has it led me to know him who wrote it? How much of it has led me to live my life in leading those that I know and love towards the knowledge of his word? And you know what came to mind in Ezekiel 3? Ezekiel is, is told that he's going to go preach to a rebellious people and not be afraid, not to get depressed. And, not, and God says, here's the scroll of what you're going to say. Eat it. And Ezekiel doesn't go and open the scroll and read it to people. He eats that scroll. And then he goes to speak. And the imagery is that the word has become so much a part of him, it is part of his blood, it is part of the molecules that course through him that he is going to speak out God's word because it has become part of him. The primacy of God's word in our lives. And I would hope that as you think through this short passage, this ceremony through the week, that you, you meditate on that and ask yourself, are the, is this word my life? One of the things that my father-in-law said that I've remembered, and I hope I don't forget, was this quote. You cannot be radically changed by what you do not know. Speaking of the Bible. The second thing, I think, to take home from this is that this is what God has always wanted. That's those three boxes. He wanted to be with his people in the garden. And sure, there were things to do. They were to tend the garden. They were to, to expand it. But he wanted to walk with them in the evening and be with them. And clearly in the end box, he wants us gathered around him as we worship him, as he provides for our needs, as he bestows peace on us. He wants to be with us. Oftentimes we think, what does God want from me? What's my purpose in life? What's, what's meaning? It's this. Everything else is secondary. What did Jesus say to us? Seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added to you. The needs that we saw met, they'll be given. In fact, Jesus spells them out. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear. I'll take care of those. You worry about this moment, this glimpse into glory of, of being intimately connected to God. How about Micah 6.8? What does it say? What is good? What does the Lord require of you? Love justice. Love covenant faithfulness. And walk humbly with me. This is what he wants. For us to desire him like he desires us. The Westminster divines nailed it on this one. In their catechism, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him. Not just know him, enjoy him forever. We lead 
busy, harried lives. I know it, I do, and I know some of you eclipse me in, in the worries and the, the stresses of life. And so we need to remember this ceremony to keep the main thing, the main thing, the primacy of God's Word, to delve deep in it and let it transform us and our minds. To remember that His desire for us is not to do, but to be with Him. And everything that we do flows out of that. This is a powerful image of knowing Him, enjoying Him, listening to Him, and being gathered around Him. That's why times like this together, the prayer lunch to follow are so important. It's what He wants. That is the more beyondness of this short passage tucked away in the middle of Joshua. And I hope, I challenge you to think about it and pray about it and meditate on it because it is a glimpse into glory. Well, let's um, take a few minutes to think about that. Pray about that, what the Lord would have to say to you before we come and sing our closing songs.